This is the Practical Homeopathy Podcast, episode number 100 with Joette Calabrese. This is Joette Calabrese, and I'd like to welcome you to the Practical Homeopathy Podcast. Women and men worldwide are taking back control of their family's health and learning how to heal their bodies naturally, safely, and effectively. So... If you're hungry to learn more, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned as we give you the tools and the inspiration you need as I share my decades of experience and knowledge using this powerful medicine we call homeopathy. Joette Calabrese here. Hi, folks. Perry here. We're doing something a little different today because this is our 100th podcast. Wow. And because of that, we thought we'd celebrate with something just a little different because people ask me about this all the time. And I don't know how much I want to reveal here, but Perry is my husband. And so I'm going to kind of interview him and he's actually going to kind of interview me as well. And we're not going to talk too much about homeopathy in terms of what to use or philosophy or theory or aphorisms or anything. Instead, today we're going to talk about where we've come from, where we've gone, where we plan to go with um, practical homeopathy and joeatcalabrese.com. So, hi, honey. Hi, honey. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start by talking about, um, I guess... People ask me, you know, when did I start teaching? And and I can't believe people would be interested in this stuff, but they've asked me to, so we're going to do this. We're going to give you a little bit of background on Joette and I, because maybe that's interesting. We don't think it is, but let's go ahead and try this. Okay. So many people may know my story and how I started out with homeopathy. And I'm not going to go over that because I've written about it. It's on my blog and it's been published, etc. But instead, I'll start talking about something that we never really talked about that much. And that was that I used to teach many study groups in people's homes and churches and church basements and schools all over Western New York, which is Buffalo, New York area. These were when the, when the kids were a little bit older because I would go out at night as well. I owned a construction company. And so we didn't argue about who was going to go to work, but I would come home from the day, have dinner and plan to go back out again. And Joette would remind me, no, she had a study group to teach. I was staying home with the kids. Many respects, I enjoyed that. Um, But we needed to get Joette's business up and going, or at least build her client base, because that's what we were doing at the time. So she would go out, Sometimes five nights a week. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. For years, I yeah. did that. I would say it was probably two years where Monday night I taught in Black Rock, which right. is a section of Buffalo. Tuesday night, it was Orchard Park suburb. Wednesday was the west side of Buffalo. Thursday was Amherst, New York, outside of Buffalo. Friday, I mean, it was really like this. And I was also teaching at the same time at Damon College. I was teaching classical homeopathy. So it was a very... To the nurses. Yeah, to nurse. Well, they were undergrad nursing school. Right. It was a very busy, busy time in our lives. And we were living at the time. In Colden. In Colden, New York, which was 15 acre farm that we had put together. And we were homeschooling our kids. Right. We had a lot on our plate. We did. (laughs) 
When I look back at it, I say, wow, what great years. But it was a lot of work. We were very, very busy. We had two goats and 30 chickens. Oh, and you and the goats. kids were were raising bees. Oh, we were raising bees. To Let me tell you about those goats, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we would try to pen these goats in. We had a six-foot-high electric fence. And these goats would climb up the side of the hut that I had built for the chickens and the goats, and they would leap over that oh, And they fence. were pygmy goats. Well, they, they were, were sold to us as pygmy goats. <laughs> Either the boys fed them too much or we were sold a bill of goods. Anyway, these goats would get out. Joe would have clients at the time coming to the house during the day. And it one was an time, office. It was actually my office on the connected to the one side One time, Joe could look out of her window and the client was facing in a different direction and she saw the goat on the roof of an expensive car. All four legs. Like up on the roof of the car. And that was it. I know that's at the time I had one of my guys working at the house. They were fixing something, one of my construction crew, and he ran out, grabbed the goat, <laughs> dragged it. If anyone knows goats, they know what that's all about. <laughs> and put it back inside the fence. But uh, the fence was I mean, it was only it was six feet when you started, but because we recognized how grandly these goats could leap, we actually you built a higher fence. It went up to something like 10 feet. Oh, my God. And it was electric. Yes. They didn't care. They didn't care. No, they didn't care. <laughs> One day we got home from church and it was summer and the windows were open, but the screens were in place. Right. And we came home and one goat was on the piano, a baby grand piano. Again, all four feet. It could have been the one <laughs> that leapt up on the car. Um, and the other goat was on our sofa and it was eating a page out of my repertory. Right. Now, I, I freaked out because the repertory was an expensive book. And at that time in our lives, everything seemed very expensive. The couch was used. Yeah. <laughs> that was my brother's couch that he gave us. So anyway, uh, it was eating a page out of the book. And I know this sounds crazy, but it was actually a page that was in the section of the repertory under stomach appetite. And it ate that page. I just, it was I so ironic, but that's Did we what tell them ate. that the chickens followed the goats into the house? Yeah, the, yeah, that's true. Because once the screen, what happened is the goats had pushed through the screen window, window. in the living room. And leaped in. And left, yeah, and, and then as a result of that, the chickens followed. Their buds, the chickens followed them. So basically, we had a menagerie in our living room. We had a barn in our living room. Yeah, how about the time? Wait, we just have to tell this story because it's so much fun. <laughs> we had a van and we go out for the day or something. I'd be with the kids and, you know, it was one of those slider door vans and the door was left open. We had emptied the groceries. The kids had helped me empty them and bring them into the house, etc. And um, I noticed a few hours later that the slider was open on the door. So I directed one of the boys to go close the door and he did. The next day, um, and, you know, every night the kids would put the chickens in the rooster to bed in their coop and close the door because otherwise a fox or a possum would get in there. So we had to be very careful of that. So they had put the chickens to bed, as we said, and then the next morning they let them out. But this morning, instead of hearing the rooster crowing the way he normally did in a very bright and brilliant crow, we heard 
<laughs> something's wrong where's that rooster it sounds like he's muffled like he's in a pillow or something <laughs> and honest to god I looked out and the rooster was in the car feet perched on top of the back of the driver's seat crowing and we heard him off in the distance I can't tell you how disgusting that car was within less than 12 hours <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? This didn't teach us anything because <laughs> every year we increase the size of our flock um, due to normal flock attrition. <laughs> and Joette found a breeder down in the southern tier somewhere that had a specific kind of chicken that she wanted the boys to experience. And so she sent me down there in the car with boxes to collect these young chicks. Well, they weren't chicks. They were Teenage teenagers. <laughs> so I got about 20 of them in these multiple boxes in the van and closed the boxes up, put them on the, in the van. They were quiet and started back on the throughway. And one of the boxes opened up and the chickens came out. Now I'm on the throughway and they're flying around inside the car. <laughs> People are driving by <laughs> and looking. <laughs> Well, chickens make a mess in very short order. Forget the feathers. They make a mess. Horrible. Chicken poo is not very nice to clean up. (laughs) And then we had bees. We had ducks. We had a pond. Yep. We stacked the pond twice (laughs) because there was a crane that every time we put them in, the crane came and just gobbled up everything. we So we just gave up. Forget it. We'll just use it for swimming and forget fishing. Right. Well, here's the problem. We're both city people and we wanted to raise our kids in the country. And uh, so that's what we decided to do. And we really were uh, green behind the ears. We really did not know what we were doing, even though we read up on it. We tried to do the best we could. It was an adventure. It was fun. There was, was no fun. doubt. Yeah. I mean, the bees, we kept the bees for multiple years yep. through the winter. Lots of honey. And we did get a lot of honey out of them. We had a lot of experience. One time, one of our hives swarmed, went across the street and went into the eaves of our neighbors. I don't know if people know what a swarming hive looks like or sounds like. Oh, my God. I had never seen anything like this. And, you know, you see pictures in children's books about a swarm of bees, but you have no idea how intense it is, the experience. All five of us were outside. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we heard this electric sound. And it was really strong electric sound. We didn't live around electricity. I mean, we had electricity, but we didn't have any Not high power lines. No. And Perry, I think we looked simultaneously. We looked up, and there was this. What would you call it? A column. A column. Black. Black column that had to have been, what, 10 feet wide Wide. and about 30 feet tall? 30 feet tall. And it was loud. And the electric sound was the sound of the bees. Bees. They had all left the hives. They were following the queen. There were two queens in the hive. And uh, the one queen decided, I've had it. And so she left and all the bees decided to follow her. She needed sepia, folks. She (laughs) left the babies. She left her husband. She needed a couple doses of sepia 200, but it was too late because we didn't know where she was. She was gone. (laughs) So we very 
carefully, without too much excitement. Snuck back in We guess, okay, come on, boys. Let's get in there. Come on, get the dog. Come on, get the cat. Let's get into the house. And we watched it. As you said, it traveled across the road. Went into our neighbor's eaves. Uh, yeah, we had to deal with that later yeah, on, didn't we? Right. <laughs> we had to help them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we have lots of animal stories. And, you know, you don't realize how interesting animals are and how much they influence, um, how they used to influence people's lives until you've lived on a small farm like what we had. You know, lots of terms like hen-packed and ruler of the roost and so many a sitting duck like a sitting duck yeah because we experienced duck. that we, yeah we experienced that a few times we had yeah. some baby ducks you want to tell that story oh no that's not a good story to tell oh. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of bad. Maybe we won't. Okay, yeah, we, we won't, won't tell this. That it's not a very no. nice story. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. So, do we have any winter stories? Yeah, they might be interested. Yeah, in? we have. But well, we lived on a ski hill. Now, for those of you who ski, um, you're thinking New Hampshire, Vermont, or maybe the West. No, no, no. <laughs> this was 750 feet elevation. It was longer to come up on the lift than to ski down the hill. But it was fun and it was right across the street. I taught there uh, for, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years, enough that all three of the boys went through the program. All three of the boys were teachers. It was a great experience for them for well, it gave them their social life social uh, because life they were homeschooled and, and teaching so it was and the great. whole thing. Plus, of course, the reason I did it, it, it allowed us to have tickets for free for the season, season's passes. <laughs> And so the boys used to just basically put their skis on in our driveway, ski down the driveway across the street. In the wintertime, it didn't really ever leave the street. And then right down the hill. We didn't care. It was a small enough little area. It was a family-run ski area at the time. And everybody, the ski instructors and the ski patrollers, all knew my boys. And they would have reported So they had lots them. of freedom. They, they just had, went off yeah. for the afternoon. Once they finished their schoolwork, they could just don their equipment. Right. And off they would go for hours till dinner time. It was a great amount of freedom for them. And for us as well. Right. No, it was fun. It was fun. And often I'd come home from work and I'd just don my skis and I'd go over. Remember that one night I went over by myself? I do. uh, I know what story you're going to tell. Go ahead, honey. So I went over at night and it just snowed. So there was a little, I don't know, an inch or two inches of powder snow. And if anyone skis, they know that's pretty exciting. So I went over Night skiing. Now, night skiing is a little bit challenging because the light causes the trails to become very flat. You can't see the contours, can't see the bumps, can't see anything clearly. And I was skiing on a particularly steep section of this hill. And as I skied down, I came over the top of a little ridge where it dropped away a little steeper. And I'm going too fast. And suddenly I realize I'm in the middle of a slalom course. Now, a slalom course means all of the slalom gates, all of the poles, and at the time they were bamboo poles, are all over this thing like an obstacle course. Unless, of course, you know the pattern. Well, I didn't know the pattern. I'm in the middle of it and going too fast. So obviously I fell because I clipped a pole and fell. And in the language of skiers, when you make a terrible fall, it's called a garage sale uh, because my skis were in one direction and my poles were in another, and my hat, and my gloves, gone. And I think what had happened is I'd fallen forward and and not done a complete forward roll, but instead landed on my shoulder blades with my head pushed into my chest. 
my chin pushed to my chest because when I awoke, I rolled over and sat up. And the natural thing you do, of course, is you start feeling, make sure everything works. You feel your fingers, you twiggle your toes. Everything was working, but I had no idea where I was. I was totally disoriented. And I don't know how long I sat there, probably for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, realized that my stuff was all around me, collected it, walked back up to the top of the hill rather than ski down. I walked back up to the top of the hill and walked home, put my skis down, walked in the house. And he looked strange. His pupils were dilated. I think. Were they di- now I don't remember, but you had a, a look in your eyes as though you were not there. It looked vacant. You looked drugged or something. And I said, what's going on? And you said, I had an injury and I think I may have injured my neck or my head and I don't feel so well. And so you laid down. I think you laid down in my office because I had a window seat there that was a good place for people to lay down. And you laid down there and you said, yep. Then uh, you were mumbling. You were speaking in a strange way. So I knew that there was a spine or a head injury. And the first thing I did was, of course, I ran and got Arnica. At that time, I was still using Arnica for head injuries. And I would still consider using it again. But I used it in a 1M. And then I also got Nat Sulf, Natrium Sulfuricum. And I waited a little while to see how he responded to the Arnica. I may also have used Aconitum, also very good for injuries and shock to the system. Now, today, I would use something different. I would probably use the Banerjee protocol of Cupra Metallicum with Arnica because uh, head injuries can result in seizures. I never saw seizures, but I would say for about an hour, you were not with us. You were Right. I had no idea, but I felt like I couldn't speak clearly. I clearly had very little memory of what had actually happened. The next day, some friends came over ski patrol friends or teachers, ski teachers, and they said they had seen it or they'd heard about it and they wanted to know how you were because they witnessed something or somebody had witnessed something that did not look good. (laughs) It definitely looked like a garage sale on the top of that hill. So at any rate, it didn't take long. You started to feel better within about an hour and a half and I kept administering the medicines and um, I really didn't want you to fall asleep until we could see whether or not things were had been moving along. And so we stayed up for a good amount of the night um, talking and I was trying to keep you awake and feeding you, etc. And and you came out of it the next day. You said, yeah, my neck hurts a little bit, but you were clear headed by the next day, which was very relieving. But I didn't stop the medicines. I think we continued with NatSolve. I think we gave another dose. It was a very high potency. And I think I gave another dose or two over that day and into that night. And then that was it. So I think it was about three doses of NatSolve that you got with Arnica Montana and a 1M maybe every um, 15 minutes at the first at the onset. And then I dropped back on that. Wow. Yeah. Is that when you had the boys start carrying Arnica with them in their ski parkas? Well, I don't know if that was the onset of it, but that is what part of our family tradition was that each child had to keep Arnica 1M in his ski parka because they would, of course, ski together often. And if one of them was injured, they knew to get the remedy out of their pocket and administer it. They never had to use it. Isn't that interesting? In all those years, uh, we were there for 23 years and they never had to use it. They just didn't get injured that way. They got injured on the property with the goats and bee stings and those kinds of things. It wasn't ever ski injuries. Right. Interesting. No, that worked well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about how we met. Yikes. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, first, let me say we were both previously married. We did not have children in our previous marriages. So when we met... We were both married for seven years. Yes. Yeah. We were, we were both married, uh, Joette, only a year, maybe two years before I was married. Right. We both came out of our marriages about the same time. Yeah. Well, it was, you were two years later, but... Um, by the time we met, we had both been divorced for some time, and we didn't have children in, in either of those marriages, right. thankfully. And so when we met, we dated for a few years, but we met through our friend Lewis. I was involved with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, and Lewis was a member of the organization Friends of the Philharmonic. I was the president of it, and we became friends. We were not dating. He was just a friend, and he invited me over to his house for dinner, and um, we had just finished dinner and there was a knock at the door and there was Perry standing there. And so apparently Perry was Lewis's next door neighbor and he came by to I don't know. Why did you come by? Do you remember? You, I guess you had just... Oh, you had just I'd been just at that I just come place. into town, and I, I was just checking with Lewis to see what was going on, what had happened on the street while I'd been gone. Um, but you were... Perry had come in, and he was all perspired and had gear on, and it was summer. And um, I think it was June or something, wasn't it? Well, you tell me. You know the I dates. Know. So you had just completed the Bermuda race. Perry's a sailor. And you had just gotten off... The boat. Well, let's back up a little bit. We live in Buffalo, New York, which is about 500 miles away from where the boat was actually run. So it's not likely I would have walked into the apartment with my sailing gear on. Oh, maybe that's, but but that literally, was a romantic right. Um, literally, um, I had memory just, of mine that I, I had just flown into town. Okay, and I was still probably <laughs> dressed, you know, in a kind of grubby sailor's get off the boat. Clothing. And, and, and so you came in. I came in. And, and and he started to talk to Lewis. And Lewis, of course, introduced us. And then Perry uh, left. And I said, okay, Lewis, <laughs> here's the deal. He's cute. <laughs> I like that, Perry. Um, how about if we go out tomorrow night and I bring my friend and you bring Perry and um, let's all spend some time together. And so Lewis did that. And indeed, that's exactly what happened the next night. Perry and I spent a lot of time talking and enjoying each other's company, and that's where it all started. Right. Should I tell the story about at the end of the evening? And Well, I don't think it was that night. I actually think it was about two or three weeks later. I invited Perry up to my apartment, and my parents lived downstairs. It was their home, and I lived on the third floor. And so I invited Perry up, and I said, why don't you come over, and we'll make flan. Now, I knew that he didn't know what flan was. Nobody really knew what flan was unless you were of Spanish origin. But one of my closest friends is Cuban and she had taught me how to make flan years before. And so I said, let's go to my apartment and we can make flan. And so I knew that he would misinterpret that, but I wanted to see how far I could take this little charade. And so we went up to my apartment and uh, we very unceremoniously marched directly into the kitchen and made flan. I said, here are the eggs. You crack them. I'll get the milk. <laughs> you whip. I'll pour. We'll measure and we will make flan. So for the longest time, that flan has been a euphemism for many other words that I'm not going to use on this. But... <laughs> But it really meant this we were. This is a G-rated podcast. We were really going. We really made flan. That's what we did. Right. <laughs> I should add here, folks, that after that, then often Joet would invite me over for dinner, and she's Sicilian, as you know, and uh, 
she would make pasta with meatballs. Well, I'm not Sicilian. I'm New England. We eat clam chowder and bland things. <laughs> and I would eat the spaghetti. We would have a wonderful evening. And then I would go home and I'd be awake all night long with agidu. The Italian word for slang word for, for indigestion, indigestion. <laughs> reflux. But I really liked Joanne a lot. And I didn't want to destroy what we were building. So I didn't tell her. In fact, I really didn't tell her until after we got married. <laughs> that you were suffering horribly. You were out of commission the following day because of this red sauce and, and, meat. and meat. Yeah, I know. But we fixed that, though. We did. We did. Like a podium did it. Like a podium fixed that. We did not use something necessarily for indigestion, although that was part of it. Like a podium 200 really made the difference in your life. And so did Nux Vomica. And yeah. so you've taken it on and off through the years for quite a long time. And it's done a great job for your gastrointestinal tract. Truthfully, folks, I loved the pasta and meatballs. I didn't like what happened, but that doesn't happen anymore. And so, so you I, can get away with it now. I can get away with I it. I don't make it very often <laughs> now, but <laughs> but that's what we used to do. Anyway, let's talk about when I was teaching these classes, because I think that's interesting stuff. I know people might be interested in learning about how we integrated all of this with our family life, which was quite busy. And that was that um, I was being asked to speak on homeopathy. And so I felt as though I needed to build a skill set that would uh, allow me to speak well, professionally. So I bought this book by Dottie Walters. And the title, I actually wrote it down here because I wanted to remember, Never Underestimate the Selling Power of a Woman. It was an intriguing title. And I read the book and it was really, it was all about professional speaking. And so uh, I read it and was and loved it. And then I thought, I'm going to call this woman. And she was in California and I called her up and she actually allowed the call to go through. I mean, she was an author, a professional speaker. If anyone knows anything about the professional speaking industry, she was at the head of it for many years. And she actually took my call and, and she spoke to me for about 10 minutes. She said, you must, if you're going to be a speaker, if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to teach in the college. And at that time, I was not teaching in the college quite yet. You must have your own book. And so I said, wow, all right. So I turned to Perry when I got off the conversation. I said, I have to write a book. And it's got to be, you know, on homeopathy and how to use it. Right. So that night, that night. And the we, following day. And the following day, that night, all night, night, all night, we had dinner, put the kids to bed. And you and I sat in the living room. We had a fire in the fireplace. And you had your laptop on your lap. And I dictated to you. And you wrote feverishly. And we banged out about maybe 75% of the book. Right. What was the title of the book? I've forgotten. Oh, Cure Yourself and Cure Family. Cure Yourself and Family. Cure Yourself and Family. It's my first printed book. Right. And look, this is not published by Simon & Schuster. We publish ourselves. We self-published. Yes. So it was all night. We drank coffee. <laughs> and into the day, the kids got up, did their chores, took care of the chickens and the bees and everything they were supposed to do, and went into their business of what they were supposed to do. And we continued working all day long. And I would say that when I say 75% complete, it was pretty much done within three days. Yep. And then we hired an editor mm -hmm. and took photographs. You took the photographs. Right. 
<laughs> and printed them. They had to have been, what, 18 years ago? Yeah. Something like 2009, that. 2009, 2008, maybe? Maybe, something like that. Wow. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. At any rate, that's how we got it done. And because I am, we both are actually, we're very suited to each other in this regard. We live with speed. Right. And I don't mean the drug. <laughs> I mean, whenever we decide we're going to do, we just do it and we do it quickly. We married later in life. We married in our mid thirties. We had our children later in life. We had our third child and I was 43. So the lifestyle that we wanted to give our children was really hatched at a later time in our lives. So we felt as though we needed to move faster, but maybe that wasn't the rationale. We were always, I mean, I was always like that. And I think you were too, always someone who liked to move along with velocity. So when we started to print that book and we also produced a CD, we actually used to print it in the dining room. Remember? Yeah. We had a big dining room table and every Sunday my parents would come over for dinner and my brother would come as well. And so there were seven of us. Sometimes if someone brought a friend, it'd be eight, nine or 10 of us. And after dinner, we gave them all jobs. Yeah. Okay. You print these pages. You punch the holes in this group of books. You scroll the, uh, what is that called? The coil. The coil into the binding aspect of the book. And we would assemble these books en masse. We were able to assemble maybe, I don't know, a hundred in a day when everyone was working full speed. And that's how we got them out. Right. Um, so it was, everything was done in our living room. <laughs> now dear Audrey does it all. Yeah. My office was the first person who contacted me and said she wanted me to take her case. I didn't have an office. I mean, I'd been studying and using homeopathy for, I don't know, almost a decade, I guess, or something like that. And I'd been teaching it. But I hadn't decided to actually practice. And so this friend asked me, actually, which wasn't a friend, she was an acquaintance, asked if I would take her case. And I said, um, sure. So I was in about two days. And we had this garage that had a little uh, room off of the back end of the garage that was a it was a bicycle room. Well, it was a utility room, but we split it in half. So there was a little room that was four feet by six feet. It was. That was chock full of bikes and right. all that. And our potting soil and right. that kind of thing. Right. So I got the kids and I said, all right, let's get everything out of here. And the two older kids helped me. Well, actually, all three of them helped me. We painted the room. Right. We moved all of the outdoor stuff out and uh, put in a table. I put in my books, of which I had many. I put a lamp in, a chair. I didn't even have a file cabinet mm -hmm. in the very beginning. It was all scrubbed down nice and clean. It had its own door to the outside, so it was perfect. And two days later, it looked like I'd been there for a while. And the first client was someone who has now become a very dear friend. It was Joanne, honey. I don't know if you oh know that. Oh, my God. I know. Isn't that something? Yeah. Joanne is a very close friend now. Yeah. And so she was my very first client in that little tiny office. Well, I'm small and Joanne is small, so we fit. Right. We expanded the office so that it was four feet by 10 feet and a little bit bigger. We kept changing it and we put in built-in cabinets and How file long cabinets. How you there? You were there. A long time. And long then time. eventually we just... We moved the cars out of the garage. And built a real... Really beautiful. Garage. In yep. fact, many images you'll see is Joette sitting in front of a very large bookcase with a window on her right. And that was 
where the old garage door was, we actually put a window there. Beautiful, beautiful and old window. That there. was uh, the garage. I loved that office. office. Yeah, it was loaded yeah, with light. Was it was facing south and east. And because we we're on a ski hill, had a very pretty view. It was a great place yeah, to work for many in, years. We put in the heating in the floor. Yeah. Which, <laughs> cold in New York, they don't name it Colden for any other reason than it gets very <laughs> cold in the winter. So the heat was great. The dog loved it. it came in, lay down on the floor. But anything above your knees was cold. <laughs> well, because we had old windows and then eventually we replaced those yeah. and the office was updated. And it wasn't insulated that well. So we had supplemental heaters. But. Yeah, it was great. So now, now life is different. Our children are raised and we've left New York State. We left that three years ago. Yeah, beginning of 2018. We moved to Florida. We now live in a townhouse. Right. We like it here. We're very happy. The weather's fabulous. Um, everything is remote. Shannon, who used to work in the office with me, and Audrey and Eileen used to work in the office with me and others. We were just stuffed into this. It was a good sized space, but we were all in one room for quite a long time. And then it all went remote. And it right. was one of the smartest things we did. Smartest things now in today's day and yeah. age in the current events, because our entire team now is each in their own private home. And it works really, really It was well. seamless. It was seamless. For us, because that's we, there was no change for us during the lockdown. So everyone works in their own home, and we have people who work for us. They're actually not employees. They're self-employed, but they work for us in our work on a day-to-day basis, and it's wonderful. We have a great team of people. We couldn't do two things. We couldn't be what we are without you folks, you, the followers of Joat, the students, the study groupers. My clients. We are so appreciative of you all and then our team members. Yeah, we couldn't do it without We them. couldn't do it without them either. So now uh, Kate said, why don't you talk a little bit, you know, because Kate usually conducts these interviews. Uh, she said, why don't you tell folks where you're headed? So let's talk a little bit about that. Right now, we've got several projects in the works, and it's not me as much as I do the writing, um, some of the writing, and I have someone who helps me with my writing. It's a big collaborative effort between a wonderful writer and me, but my focus is mainly on my clients and students. But the rest of it is pretty much in your hands, Perry. You're the one who makes sure that things are put up properly and runs the events and does the research and the marketing to find out what people are looking for. Yeah, all the ideas spin out of Joette, and I just come along and hold them all together and figure out how we're going to get this out to you folks. And I don't know, I'm kind of like the janitor with the broom. <laughs> I kind of sweep it all up, hold it all together. Makes it sound like I'm messy. <laughs> no, it's not messy. <laughs> I'm running to keep up. It is a great, exciting relationship. Yeah, Besides and the fact that I like her. <laughs> so, yeah, I like you too, honey. <laughs> uh, so what we have in the works now is we're putting together a children's curriculum. And maybe perhaps by the time this is broadcast, that will be out. We try to put out at least one course per year. Um, we are starting a membership. 
Yeah, a membership. We're going to be putting out a membership site. So yep. that's going to be kind of fun. That'll be a great way for everybody to stay connected to Joat. We've got some exciting little benefits this. from that. I'm loving that, putting that together. And a lot of this is an offshoot of of what we've been doing during this COVID-19 with the email we've sent out every day. The responses we've gotten from you folks have been incredibly heartwarming and it really motivating. Us. It really stirs touching us. us. Yeah, daily. And, yeah. and so we're going to keep it up. Yeah. Behind a membership site and we're going to create a force. This membership will become a force that we can really start to affect change, hopefully at a legislative level, by supporting charities, by supporting uh, mothers, or, mothers and grandmothers. organizations. Yep. You bet. We haven't even come up with a title yet. One of the titles included the word partnership. We're not sure how that's going to go. Yeah, we don't know. What we're not sure what be. the final name is going to be, but we're pretty darn excited about this because we love adding value to the experience. Uh, we love seeing, well, Joe, I can speak better to this than I can, but we love seeing you all grow and expand your knowledge. and Well, and have the opportunity to do what I was able to do. And I hear about it every day from students and clients who have uh, learned how to use a protocol here, a protocol there, and are taking control of their family and their own health. It's heartwarming. I really believe that homeopathy can change the world. I do believe that if we could get it out, but it has to be grassroots. You know, Perry talks about legislative action, and that's really, as far as I'm concerned, more to protect the industry of homeopathy. But I see this as a grassroots movement from woman to woman. And I always say, you know, I say mother and grandmother. I don't mean that someone has to have a biological child. A mother can be someone who's tending wildlife. A woman can be someone who has a motherly instinct towards her pets or her neighbor's needs or her nieces and nephews, etc. So although I use that word mother and grandmother, I use it a little bit more loosely than one might think. So then the other project we've got is the Academy. Right. So we're not, I don't think we're ready to disclose completely what we're doing there because we don't really know exactly what we're doing yet, but it's in the works. Um, and then we have a, another course coming up that we're pretty excited about. And I don't know that we're ready to quite disclose that yet because we don't know when that will be. And I don't want to drive everyone crazy, but every year we'd like to put out at least one new course. And then of course the other courses are all Right. Evergreened, there. as you always and say. And sometimes we add special live Q&As to make them even more valuable for you folks. We love doing that kind of stuff. Um, so, so this academy, that's that's, well, that's we wanna, goosebumps. We want to cover. That's exciting. And that's how much exciting that's going to be. That's, well, and that will include, <clears throat> of course, the kids' curriculum. Yep. So my vision of what we want to do is, you know, I'm in my late 60s. I plan on working to the last day that I'm capable of doing so. I don't know that I'll always be at quite this velocity, but that's my goal because this work, meeting with clients and students is my nourishment. It's an extension of mothering. And I took mothering to heart deeply as most mothers do. And I loved it. And my children are now in one state and we're in another. And although they come to see us pretty frequently and we spend summers up north with them, this is an extension of my mothering. And to be able to help other mothers gives me such pleasure that I can expand this information so that people are not beholden to synthetic drugs and to a synthetic way of life. I believe that the family is the mainstay, the structure, 
the fabric of society. And so I think it's very important that we protect that. And we protect the mother's position of tending to her children and having full ability to do so if she so chooses. Right. And have the tools. Homeopathic tools. Right. And perhaps it's a representation of my age. So I offer no apologies, but I'm old fashioned. And so a big part of what I do is the mother is at the hearth and the father is usually off in the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have a mother who's working. doesn't mean that we can't have a father who's at home. But however those roles are played out, whichever one decides to do the nurturing and the caring for the children on a day-to-day and all day and all night role, I want them to be equipped so that the one who's outside of the house working can do their job and protect the family and protect the finances and ensure that the family is financially stable because the children and the mother or whoever it might be, as I said, taking care of the hearth and home. And so with that, I think we've given you a little glimpse of our lives. So we'll say good night or good afternoon. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. God bless all of you. God bless all of you. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. As I hope you know by now, on my blog, podcasts, and Facebook Live, I offer as many protocols for simple conditions as I can for free without affiliates or advertising. But let me be clear. When it comes to more complex conditions, it's key that you learn how to use these medicines properly. I want you to be well-trained. So I save discussions of the more involved methods for my courses in which I walk students through each method with step-by-step training. I hope listening to this podcast has inspired you with the proper training you too can nurture and protect the health of your family and loved ones with practical homeopathy. You just listened to a podcast from practicalhomeopathy.com where nationally certified homeopath, public speaker, and author Joette Calabrese shares her passion for helping families stay strong through homeopathy. Joette's podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Blueberry, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Joette Calabrese. To learn more and find out if homeopathy is a good fit for your health strategy, visit practicalhomeopathy.com.